Morning, church. It's a blessing to worship together with the body of Christ. This is the flock of God, part of the flock of God that Jesus died for. And so when we come together, we come together um, because of his great sacrifice. This morning, I want to do a little something different. Uh, Rather than reviewing uh, our vision, I I do want to take some time to lead us in prayer. We're going to, I'm going to lead us to pray for New Zealand and the mass murders in the mosque. Uh, Even though these are Muslims, let's pray for the power of the gospel. Let's pray for the mission of Christ to be, uh, and the light of Christ to shine bright in a place of darkness, even people worshiping a false god, that we would pray for, for the missionaries there and the churches there to, to really proclaim the gospel and live out the true message of faith. Um, but also, uh, next week is going to be, you're going to hear more about our vision, because next week, uh, Pastor Terrence is going to preach on the simulation process. This is a follow-up to last week we had the ministry fair, and so give us a few weeks to kind of tally up the data, kind of talk to the, the ministry leaders, kind of follow up a little bit. And then Pastor Terrence is going to preach a message next week on follow-up to simulation. So we'll take a break from Mark. Then I'll come back the following week, and I'll, I'll lead us through the rest of Mark in the, in, the, in the three weeks that follow, or the two or three weeks that follow. So will you join me? Bow our heads. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll go into our time of God's Word. Father, We just want to come before you, before your throne of grace. And we want to ask and we want to pray for New Zealand. We want to pray for the victims and the family members of the victims of the mass murder that took place in in two mosques, Muslim mosques in New Zealand. And we do pray, Lord, for these Muslims. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the truth that you would display compassion to them through the gospel-preaching churches in New Zealand, and that many Muslims would be led to the saving knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. That Muslims, they believe in Jesus as a prophet. Lord, help them to see that he is not only prophet, he is priest, he is king, he is Lord, he is the Son of God. And Lord, we pray that you would turn their mourning into joy as you convert souls. And so Lord, though they are in another nation and though they worship a false god, Lord, we pray, Lord, for them. We remember them, Lord, because we see the reckless murder and the reckless taking of lives, the reckless acts of terror. And and we see other people who are made in the image of God who are crying out to you, but they're blind to the true God. And so, Lord, will you do what you did to us? Show them mercy. Open their eyes to Jesus. Lord, as we go to your word now, Lord, will you open our eyes to see Christ? Lord, each and every one of us who proclaim you, who believe in you, we are your sheep. You are our shepherd. You've opened our eyes to see, Lord, that you truly are the good shepherd. Even in the passage that we are going to look at today, Lord, you show us how you laid your life down for your sheep. Lord, help us to see this with eyes open, hearts open, minds enriched. Help us to surrender to your word. 
And that as we look to your word, Lord, that we would understand more what it means to be your disciple and to be disciple makers. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The, t- the title of today's message is The Mockery and Crucifixion of Christ. Now, whenever we embark upon a, a passage like this, you know, the, the, the application for us is a little challenging because we don't have to go through this type of torment that Christ went through. I mean, even to consider what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. I think God calls us all to a measure of trial, and he calls some to a greater measure of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But really, we do our part. But Christ paid the highest cost. And so a passage like this is to, the application is to move our hearts to worship, is to understand our Savior. And in our suffering... Whatever that suffering may be in our trials, you see that there is a Lord that understands us, that walks with us, and guides us, and then moves us to follow him. And that's what I want you to see today, that that what happened to our Savior is something that you wouldn't even wish on your pets or a dog. That's what they did to Jesus, but he did this for us. He did this so that we could have the relationships that we have in the church. He did this so that we can experience the power of redemption and reconciliation. And and it makes the little steps that he calls us to, when he says, follow me, take the steps to follow me, it makes those steps seem easy when you consider the steps that he took when he went up to Mount Calvary to bear the cross for us. So today, my prayer is that the Spirit would lead us to behold our Savior and to love Him and to worship Him. Please take God's word and turn me to Mark 15. Mark 15, verses 16 to 32. This is a longer passage today. I'll try my best to highlight the most important parts for us. We're not going to go through every detail, but just maybe what Mark wants us to Highlight, we're going to go as far as we can, and whatever we don't cover, we'll pick it up two weeks from now when we come back and and when we really look at Jesus dying on the cross. Okay, so Mark 15, I'm going to read to us verses 16 to 20. I want you to notice as we read the mockery of Christ. Okay, so, so let me read to you Mark 15, starting in verse 16. It says, The soldiers led him away inside the palace, And that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him, that's Christ, in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth and put his own clothes on him, and they led him to crucify him. And I think already, before we even get to the first point, which is basically the mockery of Christ, that's point number one, is the the mockery of Christ, we'll get there, is that at this point, you have to picture that Jesus is not fighting back. And that's so important. Because if you see a man being arrested, 
Whether he's right or wrong, we don't know. And he's resisting arrest and fighting back. And so they're putting force on him. You're kind of like, okay, that person's fighting back. But just imagine an innocent man who's not fighting back. But at this point, where we left off last week, Jesus was already beaten almost to the point of death. The type of scourging that he experienced, some people died from that beating. So last week, we, we kind of explained, and so, so I'm going to kind of review it quickly, is, is that we talked about the scourging process, where there was this instrument of torture, and most say that it had these whips had a wooden handle or a circular handle, and connected were leather strips. And at the end of the leather strips, there were broken pieces of glass, metal, or broken bone. And, and they would whip a person on their back, and the whippings would go around the side of their ribcage. And each time these whips hit your flesh, it was designed to rip off pieces of your flesh, sometimes exposing the surface of the bones. You can see the bones exposed. That was the type of beating. And some people died from this. So you can imagine our Lord, our shepherd, his bones exposed, his back completely lacerated, bloody and in pain. And they slammed a wooden splintery cross upon his back. So his back is lacerated and this wooden cross slammed onto his back. And on top of that, they continue to beat him. So you've got to picture this. This is not a man resisting arrest or fighting back. This is a man that's already beaten. And what's happening to him, like I said, you wouldn't even wish this on a dog. And when you see a wounded pet and you see people cruelly kicking, beating a dog, you would be like, that's wrong. But think of a human being. So even someone that you don't like as much, maybe a coworker, but you saw this happening to him or her. I mean, you would say, stop, stop. somebody stop this. Somebody do something about this. But imagine your child, your loved one, your neighbor, your friend, a church member. Just imagine human decency. And then in contrast, this is what the chief priest said in complete hypocrisy. So this is before we even get into our passage today. Jesus is scourged. And John tells us that after he's beaten, before we even read about the mockery, the chief priest answered Pilate. And when Pilate was saying, is this not enough? Can I free him now? Do you really want me to execute your king? Isn't this enough? Look at him, beaten almost to the point of death. And the chief priest of Israel said, we have no king but Caesar. That's complete hypocrisy. Complete hypocrisy. Pilate saying, this is your king. I've beaten him. Can I free him? We have no king but Caesar. And so they, they completely, the, the leaders of Israel completely give over their Messiah to the Romans. And in the hands of the Romans, it's just brutality. Brutality. The mockery of Christ. And that leads us to point number one. We see this in verses 16 to 20, verses 22 to 24, verses 26 to 32. That's what Mark wants us to see. Each gospel writer has a different focus. But I just want you to see repeatedly this theme of mockery. 
Notice verse 17, right? And we read this, this complete mockery of King Jesus. The Roman soldiers, they put their clothing on him as a mockery of royal clothing. They put a, put a purple cloak on him. What's that? Well, Roman soldiers wore this faded, uh, it was a scarlet cloak. When, when this cloak was brand new, it was scarlet. And when you wear a scarlet military cloak in the sun, over time, it gets faded by the sun and it becomes purple. And, and, so, and so this was an old, faded garment of a soldier and they slammed this on Jesus kind of like a royal robe. It was mockery. And, and saying, Jesus, wear this. Then they twisted a crown of thorns, which was meant to imitate the crown wreath worn by Caesar. And so they slammed this crown of thorns. And so scholars, some of them say it was made of broken and twisted metal. But more likely, others would say it, it, is, it was made of some type of plant material uh, that was thorny. But, but, the, but there's something about this. is The Caesar wore, the king of Rome wore a crown made of gold and precious metal. And our king, this is our king. And you look at his humility. You look at the type of people we are to be as his disciples, and he wore a crown. He has a kingdom. He died for a kingdom, which includes us. And our king wore a crown of thorns, a crown of mockery, and they slammed this onto his already bloody face and head. And so you can imagine the blood drops falling down his face. And that's our king. And so when the world mocks Christianity, the spiritual application here is that they mocked our king. And when they mistreat us, you look at how they treated our Savior. This is the crown that we worship. The crown that went upon a king. A king who was mocked and wore a crown of thorns. Such contrast to Caesar. And you look at verse 18, it's just heartbreaking. And once again, think of your loved ones. Think of your child. Think of what the father is seeing. Only at this point, the judgment of the father is already going upon his son. We saw that when we talked, when we, when we preached on the passage of Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane, right? Where he was already experiencing a foretaste of the separation and the alienation from God. We'll talk more about that next week or two weeks from now when, when he's on that cross and when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But just imagine, it says they were striking his head. And when you look at the original language, you could literally translate this. They hit or struck his head continually. And so again, he's not fighting back. He's already beaten almost to the point of death. How many of you guys would, would watch this and just watch someone, an innocent person, just, just repeated cruelty, just a repeated striking on a head? Once again, you would not wish this on a dog even, but that's what they did to Jesus. That's what they did to him. This reed is a slender stick. A slender stick, and, and some say it, it reminds them of like a bamboo type of material, though not bamboo, but something that's painful, just repeated striking in the head. And verse 18 also says they were spitting on him. That's complete humiliation, kneeling down to him in homage to him, mocking him, crying, hell, king of the Jews, hell, king of the Jews, because that's what they did to Caesar. 
The Roman soldiers would say, Hail King Caesar, Hail King Caesar. And that's what they did to him. Just complete mockery, utter mockery of our king. And then in verses 22 to 24, notice, notice that it says they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. Now, wine mixed with myrrh was a narcotic that Jews would offer to crucifixion victims. Because often you would have Jewish insurrectionists or Jewish people who rebelled against the Roman Empire, and they would be crucified. And so Jews, because they, they believe in the Old Testament, even for those being crucified, they still had a measure of, of compassion saying maybe this myrrh mixed with wine is not medically proven. The myrrh and wine would, would, would act as a, uh, a painkiller. But that's how they treated it. Drink this myrrh with wine, and it's meant to maybe be some type of narcotic to deal with the pain of crucifixion. But Jesus did not take it. He spit it out as soon as he realized what it was. And so he bore the full pain of the Roman Empire, of their, their just brutality. And then it says, they crucified him, verse 24, and divided up his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And in a moment, I'll show you later how this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. But for now, just notice this mockery. They're dividing up his clothing. And they're casting lots, like playing a game. They didn't care for his clothing. His clothing was probably bloodied and beaten. This was completely a game to them. And then you notice verses 26 to 32, how the various characters all mock Christ. I just want you to see this. And it says, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And this was Pilate's mockery to the Jewish people. Because the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish people of that time didn't want Jesus as their king. And so Pilate's saying, you know what, I'm going to mock you, and I'm going to put forth that what he did wrong was he claimed to be king of the Jews, right? And so, so that's the placard. That's the charge against him. That's why he's being crucified, because he's the king of the Jews. And the ironic thing is he is their Messiah. He is the, their king. And with him, notice verse 26, so there's a mockery, king of the Jews. It says, with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now, time permits me, from going into detail, and Mark doesn't go into detail, but the other gospel writers tell us that one of these mockers becomes, you know, converted to Christ, right? One of these criminals that was crucified by him, but Mark doesn't focus on that, and Mark focuses on the complete mockery. So the people next to him are mocking him. The Jewish leaders have mocked him. The Roman soldiers have mocked him. Pilate has mocked him now. Now look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And of course, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body being crucified and dying and his body being resurrected. The temple of God being his body, right? And the resurrection being the rebuilding in three days. But they were mocking him. And then go down to verses 31 and 32. It says, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Verse 32, let the Christ, 
the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You see that? So Mark's just showing you. The people passing by mocked him. The religious leaders mocked him. The chief priests went up and double mocked him because they mocked him before. Now they mock him again. And it says those who crucified were crucified with him reviled him. And Mark doesn't tell the story of the conversion of, of, of one of the thieves. So Mark leaves us with this complete reviling and mockering upon our Savior. And once again, I ask, how many of us could look upon an innocent man mocked and left to die and not feel anything, not say anything, not think this is completely wrong and we're guilty. You, you see, but the reality here is that it actually requires a spiritual conversion to actually even feel the conviction and to see that Christ is innocent and we deserve his punishment. That's the miracle that is not happening here for a lot of these people at this point, right? Because in the same way, when you talk to some non-Christians, and if you're non-Christian, we're so happy that you're here. But in your mind, maybe you're thinking, and it's a completely fair thought, and if you haven't experienced the conversion of the Spirit yet, maybe if you're non-Christian, you're thinking, there is no way I can believe that the Son of God or a God would subject himself to this type of murder, torture. There's no way that a father, if God the Father, if he's really divine, why would he allow people to do this to his son? How could God do this? How could God allow people to mock him, kill him, and murder him this way? That, that, that doesn't make sense. He can't be God. If he's God, he would be all-powerful and all-amazing, and, and he would just destroy everybody. He surely would not subject himself to this type of mockery, and no good father would allow this to happen to his son. But that's the power of the gospel. The gospel is that, yes, Jesus is the king, not just of the Jews, but of the world. He is the creator. All things were created through him and for him. Colossians says, and he is the son of God, and God the Father is all-powerful, and God put his son on the cross for you and me, for us. And the son of God did subject himself for us, and those who have spiritual eyes to see, and we pray that if you're here this morning, if you don't know Christ, that he would open your eyes to see this, that Jesus loves us more than we would ever know, going to the cross, subjecting himself for us. The power of the gospel is for those who believe. You see, 1 Corinthians says the cross is foolishness to the world. The world says there is no way that God would go on a cross. There is no way that we could have a crucified Savior. I will not, I refuse to worship a crucified Savior. But that is exactly what the Jewish leaders are saying. He saved others. Can he not save himself? If he is the king of Israel, then let him come down from the cross. May it never be that we have a crucified Messiah. If he really is our Messiah, he'd be sitting on Caesar's throne and not hanging on Caesar's uh, torture, instrument of torture, the cross. Right? That he would not be this way. And that's exactly how most of the world would think. There's no way that a crucified Savior could be our Lord. And Mark is showing us exactly the opposite, but there is a divine purpose for this. And here's where we see it. I'll give you all the cross-references. 
Isaiah 50, verse 6, shows us that Jesus was mocked, beaten, left to die, and crucified in fulfillment of Scripture. In Isaiah 50, there's a prediction, the prophecy of God's servant, that God's servant was suffering, would suffer. He'd be a suffering servant. And then look at the, look at how close this is in fulfillment to what happens to him in Mark. It says, I gave my back to those who strike me, the lacerations of the back, and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And that's the New American Standard version. I like how they rendered this particular passage a little more than the ESV for this particular passage. But they spit on him. And that's exactly to fulfill scripture. You look at Psalm 22. Do you think that the psalmist could ever imagine, could ever imagine that the Messiah of Israel, the greater son of David, would go through crucifixion. But look at the words and and just see how Jesus fulfills it. Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man. That's what they did to our Lord. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And that's exactly what Mark tells us. They were wagging their heads. Psalm 22, verses 14 to 18, tell us, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, but not broken. He's still the perfect Lamb of God. Not a, not a bone was broken. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands. So now he's going to talk about what they're going to do to him, crucifixion. They've pierced my hands and my feet. How could the psalmist know this? Right? Divine, divine prophecy, the, the illumination, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Christ fulfills this completely. They've, they've pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. That's what they did. And look at this, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How could the psalmist ever even imagine this? Look at the utter accuracy. How could the Romans know the Old Testament? They did it, not to this degree. How could they know that they're fulfilling Scripture? So what we see here is the plan of God unfolded, the mercy of God unfolded, the fulfillment of Scripture. Why was Christ mocked in fulfillment of Scripture, but for us, for our salvation? That's the first point, the mockery of Christ. Point number two now is the stranger turned servant of Christ. The stranger turned servant of Christ. Now I want to focus a little bit on Simon of Cyrene. Go back to Mark 15, if you're not there, and look at verse 21. It says they compelled a passerby. But when you look at the original languages, this could be they forced upon a passerby. It's not like, hey, let me compel you. Let me convince you. Yeah, yeah, here's the reasons why you should marry me. That's not the conversations that's happening here. 
They forced him. The Roman soldiers compelled a passerby named Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Notice verse 21, there's a stranger named Simon of Cyrene. We've never heard of him before up to this point. He's passing by, and the Roman soldiers forced him to, because they had this right to enforce the ordinary citizens of Rome, as well as the Jewish people, to just do whatever they wanted them to do. And when it says there he's coming in from the country, some people say he was a Jewish pilgrim coming in for Passover. Others say that he actually lived in Jerusalem and he was coming back from the fields. So either way, we don't know the details, but he's coming back. He's on his way, basically. Meaning he had somewhere to go. He was coming from somewhere. He's on his way somewhere. Right? And and so we have a possible reference. So who is this guy? Who is this guy? Now, what we do know, we have some possible references through some background. Right? In Acts chapter 2 and and Acts chapter 6, it tells us that there were Cyrenian Jews in Jerusalem, which means there were people from Cyrene. Where is Cyrene? Cyrene is now modern-day Libya, and this is northern Africa. But that's where Cyrene is or was, and there happened to be a settlement of Cyrenian Jews in Jerusalem. And so, and so that's that's might have been where Simon was from. And in Acts 2 and Acts 6, it tells us about the Cyrenian Jews being there. And then in Acts 13, verse 1, it identifies a man named Simeon. Now, we, we're not sure if this is Simon, but some scholars will say that Simeon is another form of Simon, which is a true statement, and they also refer to Simeon as Niger. And I think back then they're not saying it in a derogatory terms. They're basically saying he's from Africa. Right? And, and because Cyrene is from northern Africa, some scholars are saying Simeon, who was from Niger, is actually Simon of Cyrene. Now, we don't know how accurate that is, but that could be a sign that Simon was a believer. But then there's something more that gives us evidence where we believe that Simon, he didn't just carry the cross of Christ. Something happened to him where he was converted and became a follower of Christ. And we know this because of how Mark identifies him. I want you to notice back again in Mark 15, verse 21. He says, he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now that means nothing to Mark's audience unless they knew who who Alexander and Rufus are. That's like me saying to you, look, you don't know Simon, but you know his kids. You know his grown adult children. Oh, that's so-and-so's dad. Okay, that's so-and-so's father. So Mark is making a connection with his readers. But there's something more powerful. In Romans 16, verse 13, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Why is this connected? Because Mark is writing his gospel from Rome. And his primary audience are the Jews in Rome or the church in Rome. Right? So in Romans 16, 13, Paul, writing later, says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother. And here's what touches my heart. I ought to touch your heart. So the Apostle Paul, this is way later, after Jesus is crucified 
after Mark is written. The Apostle Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. In other words, Simon's wife was like a spiritual mother to Paul. That's the way I see some of you as my aunties. Praying for me, feeding me, raising me. Right? And, and then the Lord in his grace calls me to be a preacher and pastor and shepherd. That's Simon's wife. So, so we look at this, we're like, Simon became a believer. His wife became a believer. Not just a believer, but a spiritual mother to Paul. Which means she was a mature believer. And, and Rufus, Paul says, greet Rufus. It's not just a funny name. Okay, but greet Rufus, meaning he's some type of spiritual leader, we assume, in the church of Rome, and we assume the same for Alexander. So Mark's making a connection saying, this man, Simon of Cyrene, it wasn't like how the world would, would see it. Right? He's on his way back into the field. He has a place to go. He probably has some important things to do. But he's interrupted. And the world, the world would look at this and say, man, Simon, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Look at what happened to him. He got inconvenience. The Roman soldiers dragged him, forced him, carry this heavy, wooden, splintery cross. But when we look at God's plan, what we see here is not wrong place, wrong time. That's the application. You know, sometimes when we're called to do something, even a small task, as hard as it might be, and this is hard physical labor. I'm not sure how far he carried it for, right? But we know it was up to Golgotha. But at what point, right, did, did he begin to pick up this cross? That, I'm not certain. But we would look at this as he's in, he is in the right place in God's time. This was unexpected, but sometimes it's, it's what Christ calls us to do when we're not prepared for it, it where, where we are in God's time. And this might be just loving your neighbor, but here's the spiritual application and the truth. Is that here Simon is sharing in the sufferings of Christ, literally. He's sharing in the sufferings of Christ, but Christ would pay the highest cost. Christ would ultimately suffer the greatest sacrifice, which means Simon's sacrifice is not only an honor, it was easy compared to what our Savior and our Lord went through, right? And, and so, so we believe that the reasons why, okay, the reasons why the Roman soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross is that there's two reasons. One is that Jesus was so beaten up, so beaten up, that he had no strength to carry his cross up the hill. And so the soldiers didn't want to wait all day. And they didn't want Jesus just to die there. So, so they just forced this guy. And this is all part of God's plan. But the other thing is, Simon had to help Jesus. And part of God's plan was that Jesus had to make it up there to die by 3 p.m. Because at 3 p.m. in Jewish tradition is when all the Passover lambs were slain. And so Jesus had to make it up there. He was on the cross by 9 a.m. Right, that's what verse 25 tells us. It was the third hour when they crucified him. That's 9 a.m. Jewish time. And then in verse 33, it says, when the sixth hour had come, that's 3 p.m., Jesus dies. And so Jesus dies fulfilling scripture as the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. 
And as part of God's sovereign plan, he allows this stranger, Simon of Cyrene, to share in the sufferings of Christ and become a follower of Christ. Amazing what you look at God's plan. And point number three is we see the crucifixion of Christ. So we've seen this, we've seen this morning the mockery of Christ. We've seen, secondly, the stranger turned servant of Christ. Point number three, the crucifixion of Christ. And look at verse 25. This is the third hour they crucified him. Beloved, sometimes, you know, I'm reminded often, but sometimes when I pray for you, and Jesus reminds me, says, you're praying for the people that I purchased. You're praying not only for yourself, because I'm part of the church, you're praying for the church. You have to love the church. You have to be tender with the sheep. You, you have to understand the, the sacrifice, the suffering that I went through to purchase that sheep. And sometimes we as God's sheep, we don't know. So, so we rebel, we go through sin. We, it takes time for us to grow. And it's frustrating. But you just imagine how frustrating we are with ourselves, how frustrated we are with one another when we're trying to walk with one another or when we're battling our own sin. And you think upon the cross. And this should be our motivation to love one another and to love Christ and to love people. You look at what they did to our Savior. It says the Roman soldiers, when it says they crucified him, what does that mean? And so we understand the cross. The cross has been fashioned into beautiful jewelry. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a symbol. But what happened was they threw him down on this wooden cross, splinters running into his ripped flesh. And John MacArthur explains that oftentimes crosses, there's a certain height that they're going to make these crosses, right? That that you're not going to touch the ground, but they're not going to spend all this time to like elevate the cross unless they really wanted to, to make a show out of you. So they would basically fashion the cross to shape your height, which means if the cross was reserved for us, every one of us would have had a special cross for us. We deserve to be on that cross. Jesus took our cross. And then imagine his ripped flesh being slammed onto this splintery wooden cross. They hammered nails. These aren't the Home Depot nails, though they have these big type of nails at Home Depot as well. But, but they had these, these like railroad spike looking type of nails, five to seven inches, John MacArthur says in his commentary, five to seven inches. And so one spike through his foot, another through his wrist so that they can hold him up, meaning his, it's already going to rip through the flesh until it hits the bone. And so all of your weight is being held down by your bones on this cross, right? And so just imagine the pain already, and he's already beaten up to the point of death. But it wasn't the nails that executed him. We talked about the abandonment. We talked about that uh, when we preached on Gethsemane. We'll talk about abandonment again uh, when we get back to verse 33, two weeks from now. But it was, it was suffocation and exhaustion. They raised the cross until it stood vertically, And what happened is in this hanging position, it's impossible to breathe when you're that beaten. And so in order for you to breathe, you would have to raise yourself and lift yourself. But how much energy would you have left? So we breathe the air of common grace. God gives air to everyone, whether you worship him or not. 
And sometimes we take that for granted. And Jesus is raising up, even for his common grace, it's not there. He's the one. He's God. He ordains the common grace. He, 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 he comes up for air, what you and I take for granted, and it's not there. You know, he has to work so hard, and he can't. So, so eventually he gets exhausted, and he suffocates. And if you've ever suffocated or, or felt like you lost your breath, or, you know, maybe you're snorkeling, and I'm one of the guys, I just can't snorkel. Because I have to breathe through my nose. I'm, I'm weird like that. I can't, you know, and, and even when I do that, I feel like I'm suffocating, even though I'm Baptist. You know, I, you know, there are times where I'm like, I can't snorkeling be like sprinkling. You know, that's the only time. Every other time, I love being underwater, right? And, and, so, and so you're underwater. Just imagine that you can't breathe. The pressure on your bones. Every single time, he's rubbing his ripped back against that wooden cross. Here's the crazy thing. One scholar explains that there are records, historical records of crucified persons surviving on the cross for nine days. Up to nine days of just torture. And Jesus died that day because he was beaten so badly. Already left for dead. And it was part of God's plan to fulfill the Passover, the final true and better Passover on Good Friday. But Jesus died. Beloved, that's what we see. So let me give you the big idea. The big idea this morning, the main point, the central truth, the take-home truth, what we see from the passage is Christ was mocked and he was crucified in fulfillment of Scripture and for the salvation of sinners. And, And today the application that we see is that the cross is the center of the gospel. When we look at the cross, it compels us. Like, like Jesus, why should I love that brother or sister? They get on my nerves. Look at what Christ endured for us. It is a small cost to take up your cross momentarily and just love on other people. Or, or God, you're calling me to, to give up this area of my life. You're calling me to disciple someone. You're calling me, whatever it might be, you're, you're calling me to give more of myself, more of my time. You're, you're calling me to examine my sin. You're calling me to, 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 to seek help so that the Spirit can change me. I mean, you look at everything that Christ would call us to do, and it's not crucifixion. Some Christians endured crucifixion, and they were called to that. But in a couple of weeks, you're going to see that no Christian is actually can endure the eternal hell of wrath that Christ endured on the cross, the judgment of his Father. Right? And this is amazing what Christ endured. The cross is the center of the gospel. Jesus, the innocent Son of God, dying in the place of sin, he was our substitute on the cross. Right, The cross designed for us, but our, our Savior took it as our substitute. And everything Christ endured, is what we deserve. The eternal judgment of God is still waiting for anyone who does not have our Lord and Savior. Yet the eternal grace of God is offered to anyone who would repent and turn to him. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, he wrote something along these lines. He says, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. And I think what he meant by that is that anytime you truly love someone, it costs something. And when it costs you something, their problems 
become your problems. And whatever energy, resource you have becomes their resource. And you just think of that. Christ endured the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice for us. If we are to be the church, and we are to understand bearing one another's burdens, and walking alongside of each other, and spurring one another on, Hebrews 10, towards the gospel and towards the Christ, then consider that all love, all true life-changing love, the type of love that changed us is the love that reflects the cross. You just think about that. When someone is suffering, whether it's emotionally, financially, sometimes it's hard, right? And we're scared to jump in because if you jump in, they're going to call you and their emotional energy becomes your, you're listening to them, you're bearing the burden, Right, so their emotional stress becomes your emotional stress. Their depression, if you will, becomes yours momentarily, right? If they're physically suffering, you're walking with them. So then you're bearing it with them financially. Sometimes you're coming alongside of people. You're pouring. Your money becomes their money. But that's the church, right? That's the church bearing one another's burdens. And when you're walking with someone through sin, right? Because that's what Christ did, right? He bore our sin, when you're walking with someone through sin, it's so easy to be like, I'm going to give up on you. And then you have to check yourself for your own sin, right? Because we're all prone to fall. But when you're bearing with someone who is struggling through sin, you know, their problems become yours. And so if you've ever done ministry where, like, you, you know, especially youth ministry or, or something where you're dealing with students and you're pouring everything in and they don't get it and maybe they even curse back at you or they don't care and, and, or they go away from the faith and break your heart. You know what? That's reflective of the cross because your love to them is not in vain, right? Your love to them is, is a, whatever love become, be, became theirs and whatever hurt or pain or suffering or burden, you bear it. That reflects the cross. This is exactly what Jesus did for us and that's what we mean when we say the cross is the center of the gospel and the gospel is the power to change lives. The gospel is foolishness to the world. The world would say, why? It's an inconvenience. You have stuff to do, Simon. Why would you carry the cross of Christ temporarily? Why would you bear anybody else's burden, let alone, you know, inconvenience yourself? And God says, remember the power of the message and the type of sacrifice that it required to convert us. And then when you learn that, when you gaze upon the man of sorrows, you will understand the type of love, beloved, that we are to have for each other. And then the easiest thing to do, though it's hard, is to simply offer prayers for people, which we ought to do, and then come alongside of them. And so when we say, beloved, that we love you more than you know, even our love is insufficient to compare to the love of Christ, but we're trying to understand and reflect that type of love, the burden-bearing, sacrificial, substitutionary type of love. Will we as a church learn to love Christ and to love each other in this way? Let's pray. Father, we just want to pray for anybody in here who does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior. Father, I pray, we pray that you would touch them, reveal your love to them, convict them of sin, bring them to turn to you, save them, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Apart from your mercy and grace, 
None of us would see that the cross is beautiful. None of us would see the exclusivity of the gospel as, as loving rather than offensive. None of us would, would, would gaze upon a broken Savior and love him. So, Father, will you, through your Spirit, save us? And, Lord, for those of us who are believers, Father, help us to grow in our love for you, but help us also to exercise the power of the gospel by living and loving and bearing one another's burdens and to be the church that you've called us to. Lord, for in that way, we will be a vibrant church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.